So, you heard we were talking about sex, huh? Tonight? Hmm. It was either that or conflict. I actually needed more time to work on conflict. Um, not that the two are completely unrelated. Um, but part of, the, uh, part of the sadness, I guess, is, man, there's so much I want to say and so little time to say it. So I'm going to start out by recommending a book. Um, it's actually by my next-door neighbor, Sam Alberry. He, um, I was hoping to get him to do this talk this semester, but scheduling just didn't work out, so I'm going to get him to preach one of the uh, times in the fall. In the fall, I'm going to talk about defeater beliefs which are ideas that are kind of floating around in the cultural air that make other truth claims not even worth considering. Um, and this is one of them. And he wrote a book entitled, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Which is one of the things we're going to talk about tonight. Um, he actually, I think, starts out in a really helpful way. So I'm going to read this a little bit. File this under the... Uh, topic of why this is difficult to talk about in our day and age and in this context. One of the reasons is so many people who have grown up in the church have been fed really bad advice from bad Christian books and from the purity movement. And if you don't know what that is, count yourself blessed. Um, but you may have been influenced by it nonetheless. Um, and I will talk about some of the, the lies that have been, I think, spread by that movement, well-meaning as it has been. Um, but also, the, the other reason is because the Christian view of sex used to be seen as old-fashioned and rather quaint, uh, but now uh, things are a little different. Here's the way he puts it, and I thought I could do no better than to read you this. He says, more and more sexual freedom is regarded as one of the greatest goods in Western society. A huge amount has changed over the past decade or so. Just 15 years ago, Christians like me, who follow the teaching of the Bible, would have been thought of as old-fashioned for holding to the traditional understanding of sex being exclusively for marriage. But now, increasingly, we're thought of as being dangerous to society. Our views on sex have become that significant. Who we sleep with is seen as a supreme human right. Anything that seems to constrain our choice in this area is somehow viewed as an existential threat. So the Christian claim that sex is for a very particular context is far more of an offense than it is a curiosity. Why should God care who I sleep with is perhaps less a question and more just a freestanding objection that doesn't really require an answer. And yet, an answer exists. Christians continue to believe what we believe about sex, and it is a belief that isn't going away, however much it might be derided today. And it is a belief for which there are compelling reasons. I would love for you to understand these reasons and weigh them properly before you decide what to do with them. And then here's, here's how he concludes this little introduction. God cares who we sleep with because he cares deeply about the people who are doing the sleeping. He cares because sex was his idea, not ours. He cares because misusing sex can cause profound hurt and damage. He cares because he regards us as worthy of his care. And in fact, that care is not only seen in telling us how we should use sex, but also in how he makes forgiveness and healing available to us when we mess this up.
I think that's a great way to start. Now, you'll notice I didn't hand out a scripture passage. I'm actually going to look at several passages tonight as we talk about what the Bible has to say about sex uh, in our series here on gospel-driven relationships. If you have a Bible on your phone, you might go ahead and open it. The first passage we're going to look at here in a minute is going to be Genesis chapter 1, right at the very beginning. Um, But it'll take us a few seconds to get there. So, why does God care who I sleep with? I love Sam's answer. I think it's the right place to start. God cares who we sleep with because he cares deeply about the people who are doing the sleeping. God cares about all that he has made. In an era of Me Too and Title IX, both of which are helpful things, for both spotlighting the grievous sin that has remained hidden for far too long. In that era, the era we live in now, it's pretty hard to argue that misuse of sex doesn't really matter. I don't think there's anybody in this room that would seriously try to argue that. Everyone recognizes there are limits to what is appropriate, even if the only thing you think makes it appropriate is consent or a minimum age. There's not many people that think there are no restrictions whatsoever. And not only that, that understands that violating this causes more than just physical harm. And if you've read any of the Me Too stories, not just a tweet here or there, you know the wreckage that misuse of sex, not respecting consent, and all those sorts of related evils cause. Sam actually points out, I thought this was interesting, I hadn't thought about this. When Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about adultery, and he says this thing that shocked everybody in his day, that even lusting after a woman in your heart is to violate that commandment, he's teaching this about the woman. He's not just talking about the men and what they shouldn't or should do. He's actually saying something profoundly important about the woman. He's teaching that her sexuality is precious and valuable, that she has a sexual integrity to her which matters and should be honored by everyone else. Maybe you've heard me say this before. The best way to think about the Ten Commandments are not like ten rules so that you know, God can kind of lord his power over us. No, they're the 10 conditions in which flourishing, healthy communities happen. They are the conditions for flourishing community, that sexuality would be honored, that the truth would matter, all of those sorts of things, right? Now, you might think Jesus goes too far here. I mean, what you think in your own head, that really should be not anybody else's business, should it? Why should we care what's in our minds? Surely this is overly restrictive and a prudish view. But I was reminded of something G.K. Chesterton said. If you like C.S. Lewis, you'd probably like G.K. Chesterton, who was an influence on him. One of the, the greatest essayists of the 20th century, he said this, You shouldn't take down a fence until you know why the fence was put up in the first place. So before you say Jesus is being overly restrictive, you should at least try to understand why he might say such a thing. Why does God 
care. God cares because he has a much higher view of sex than we might think. This was seen, I think, not too long ago when Rachel DeHollander, hero, uh, testified. Actually, she gave a victim impact statement at the trial of Larry Nasser. You all remember the USA gymnastics doctor who was convicted of horrific abuse over many, many years, right? Um, Rachel, in her victim impact statement, asked this profound question. What is a little girl worth? In doing that, she's reflecting God's view that sexuality is a precious gift and worthy of respect and care. But to see the significance of that, where that comes from, we actually need to go back to the beginning of the story to see why God created sex in the first place. Before that, we need to pray. So let me pray, and then we will dig into Genesis chapter 1. Lord, we pray that you would help us tonight. A topic that brings up all kinds of uh, feelings, uh, awkwardness, pain, um, shame, all kinds of things. Lord, we pray that we would um, know you tonight to be the one whose name is sweet, the one who is tender towards the brokenhearted. To that end, open our eyes to see you for who you really are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we dig into this, let me just say, you don't have to agree with what I'm going to say tonight to keep coming to RUF. I'm sure there are people in here that won't agree with me, right? Um, but I hope that we can at least talk about it. And we actually have an opportunity on Thursday night, if you'd be so bold, to come over to our house and we can dig into this more. Sorry, it's here, it's not at our house. It's here, even easier, even more convenient. Um, and we'll have a way that you can ask questions anonymously, like we always do for that, okay? So if, if I stir something that you wanna be like, oh, I don't know about that, let me ask some more questions about that, That'll be a great opportunity to do that. But let's go back to what, uh, where the story begins. It's in Genesis chapter 1. Now, I don't know what you've learned in Bible classes, but um, the two creation accounts are not contradictory. Um, it really, actually, there's a very good literary reason why there are two creation accounts. One is the creation of the world, and then it zooms in, in the second creation account, to what really matters, the most significant thing, which is mankind, the crown of creation. It's very clear that that's an intentional, not a sloppy editing job, okay? And the views, they, the, 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 those passages actually each tell us something that's really important as we consider the issue of sexuality. Note first, when we look here at verse, chapter 1, verse 26, notice all through this chapter, basically God creates with merely a word. He says, let there be light, and there is. But when you get to verse 26, it's actually a little different. Look what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So here, actually, instead of just saying, man, let there be man, he actually deliberates, takes his time, if you will, and considers this. And in doing that, clues us in that there's a particular significance to the creation of mankind. There's something that points us here about the significance of this, and we quickly find out what it is as we read on. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Nothing else in creation 
is said to be made in God's image or God's likeness. So that's one thing. Then let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So right here, you got two unique things. Mankind is made in God's image. It's not said about anybody else or anything else that he created. And male and female is particularly pointed out. There were other male and female creatures, but none of them made in God's image, right? And then it says that they are to be fruitful and multiply. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them, that is the man and the woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what is God saying here? Right from the very beginning, he's telling them to be fruitful and multiply. He's saying, I've created you in such a way, male and female, after my image, and I want you to take my image and spread it throughout the cosmos. And the way you're going to do that is through sex. Be fruitful and multiply. Like I said, God is the one who created sex, and he created it actually as a way for his image bearers to spread his image throughout the creation. So what do we learn about this? Well, we learn that the first reason for sex that the Bible gives is procreation. That's not all the Bible has to say about sex, and we're going to talk about two other purposes the Bible speaks about, but that's the first one. And you shouldn't skip past it and the implications of it. Back to Sam Alberry, he puts it this way, in our culture, we tend to think of sex primarily, and in some cases exclusively, as being about recreation. It is simply meant to be a means of enjoyment with no unchosen reproductive consequences. We see this sexual freedom more and more as a fundamental right in our society, and any perceived obstacle to it is seen as an existential threat. Uncomfortable though it may be, the Bible challenges this way of thinking and challenges it right from the beginning. Recreation is not the first purpose of sex mentioned. Though, as we're going to see, there's a whole book devoted to the recreational pleasure of sex. It's called the Song of Solomon, right? So the Bible encourages that, but it's not where it starts. The story starts with image bearers, complementary image bearers, who each bear his image in complementary ways that go together in a beautiful way to spread the image bearing throughout the whole cosmos. That's a big deal. The second thing we see here, and this you have to go over to the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, how the woman is made, how that's described in chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here it talks about one flesh, but don't miss the fact that the creation actually um, shows that there's a kind of coming apart and then a reuniting. The, the imagery here is really fascinating. That the way the woman's created, there's a separation of the man's flesh, but in sex, there's a becoming back to one flesh. That doesn't mean that individuals don't fully image God, but there is something particularly special about the way sex and the two becoming one flesh images God. Unity in diversity, much like the Trinity, which is a fascinating thing to consider. But what do we see about this one flesh? Well, we find here the second purpose for sex. It's for procreation, but it's also for bonding, becoming one flesh. And from other places in the Bible, for particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 to 5, we don't have to look at that. I'll, I'll tell you what it is. We read it last week, actually. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about how sex is to be something you give to your partner in marriage. So it shifts the focus from what can I get to what can I give. That's important to understand about this bonding. God created sex not only as a way for children to be able to carry his image, but also for you to give yourself in a whole-souled way to another person. It is a life-uniting act that's built into the purpose of it. And that's why in Matthew 19, Jesus actually quotes Genesis, and it's interesting what he says. Um, it's, they ask him a question about divorce. This is in chapter 19, verse 4. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. There's that bonding thing again. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now that's interesting because not only does he talk about the bonding, but he says it's this bonding, this union is something made by God, something he joined together, which is not to be undone. One flesh is more than just physical. It's a whole soul coming together. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, look, you got to quit having sex with temple prostitutes because it's not just this meaningless physical act. It's actually uniting you to this other person. And if you're already united to Christ, you're actually uniting Christ to the temple prostitute. It's a big deal. It's a uniting act. Okay. All right. Third purpose. I already mentioned this, but I'll just make sure you get this, is that God created sex for pleasure. In fact, as I said, there's an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Songs, which celebrates the pleasures of sex. But a lot of people have been uncomfortable with the plain meaning of this book. I just got to tell you, both Jewish commentators and Christian commentators for millennia have said, no, this book can't really be about sex. 
It can't really be about delighting in the pleasures of sex. It has to be about God's relationship with his people or Christians. It has to be about Christ's love for his bride. Now, I think that there's implications for it, but first and foremost, it's a book about the delights and the pleasure of marital love. And that's a really fascinating thing because a lot of Christians just don't know what to do with that. And that takes us to some of the lies that we've heard in the church and in the culture. I actually had 12 of these and I had to cut half of them out because I didn't have enough time. Maybe some of your questions, if you come on Thursday, we'll dig out some of the ones I had to skip. I picked out the ones that I think are really important for you to hear. And the first is this. There, the, the lie that sex is dirty or that God or the church is embarrassed by it. The Bible teaches that sex is good. And actually in 1 Timothy chapter 4, this, I remember in seminary when Jaron Bars, one of our professors, asked a group of maybe 100 of us studying to be pastors, what is the teaching that Paul calls a doctrine of demons taught by hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron? It's very strong. And not a one of us knew the answer, which is kind of shocking, right? What is the answer? It's teaching people to abstain from marriage and sex and certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. I don't know very many Christians who really think that that's that big a deal, but Paul says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people that sex is not a good thing. Now, I have kids who are teenagers and now, you know, uh, all of the age where they could be having sex. So I understand why people might want to teach their kids that sex is a bad thing. You know, don't let them learn about grace until they, you know, get married, you know, all that kind of thing, right? But it doesn't work that way. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, how the Bible actually says rules are worse than useless for restraining sensual indulgence. Uh, and I don't know if a lot of Christians understand that. At least when I read their books, it doesn't seem like they understand that. But the Bible says that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this passage, it's a doctrine of demons to teach people that sex is a bad thing. Now, why would Paul have to say that? Well, because that's what the Greeks believed. The, the idea that, that the body was somehow inferior to the spirit. There's still way too many worship songs that perpetuate that idea, which is not Christian. God is very happy that he created a physical world and he created human beings to have sex. You, you know, it says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. God was not ashamed either. He was not embarrassed. He created it. It's, it's a good idea, right? He said it was very good after he creates the woman. And you know what Adam said? The first time he sees her, he breaks out into poetry, right? So you don't have to think that all that kind of, you know, kind of stirring in your heart, you know, over what somebody looks like is a bad thing. And you need to just sort of push that down. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is way more frank and celebratory about sex than I think many Christians are. And a lot of Christians have, have had pretty mixed up ideas about this. St. Augustine, as wonderful as he was in so many ways, taught that sex was a necessary evil for procreation, but if you enjoyed it, that was sinful. The Bible never says that, never says that. 
And, and one, of the, one of the things that you should just sort of make a rule in your life is don't ever try to be more spiritual than God, right? Don't think that physical pleasures are bad. As a matter of fact, Paul tells Timothy, you know, that it's a doctrine of demons to teach that certain foods and sex, which God created to be received with thanksgiving, are to be rejected. He says, if you point this out, Timothy, you're a good minister of the gospel. What does it mean to be a good minister? It means to point out the goodness of the world God created, the food that he created, and sex. Yes, and sex. So sex is dirty is not what the Bible teaches. And I think sometimes people will say, yes, but, 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 but. Um, but the Bible doesn't say it that way. There are restraints. Every, every gift that matters needs to be handled with care. Sex is powerful stuff, without a doubt. But it's not dirty, it's not bad, it's not an inherently unspiritual thing. And, and too often, children in the church grow up with a basically negative view of sex. And it becomes this odd thing, like when you get married, all of a sudden, all this th thing that you for your whole life thought was bad, 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 now all of a sudden it's good. That's not the way to think about that. Second, and this uh, sort of, I guess, is the other uh, extreme. Sex is just a biological function. And Paul actually deals with that as well. The, the Corinthians had this saying that food is for the stomach and like basically sex is for the body. Like sex is just something you do. When you're hungry, you eat. When you feel sexy, you sex. And he says that's not true either. It's not true, right? That was a very popular view in Paul's day. Sex is just a biological urge, and if you have a concubine or a prostitute, great, no problem. If you have slaves, then you can take care of that urge. If you're too poor to have slaves, well, you can go have sex with a temple prostitute. Where do you think the temple prostitutes came from? Mostly from girl babies that were turned out onto the trash heaps. And the only people that cared about getting them were the people that wanted to turn them into temple prostitutes and the Christians, right? So it was a horrible system, but it, it was built on this idea that sex has no moral component to it. It's just a biological necessity. But of course, you know, you know in your hearts that sex is different than eating. C.S. Lewis has this great place where he talks about, you know, imagine if you went to this island and you'd never been there before and you go into this, this nightclub and it's real dark and there are people kind of sitting around and there's this stage with a curtain and all of a sudden this like music starts dun, 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 and, and everybody's starting to get a little, you know, excited, anticipated. And all of a sudden the curtain pulls back and there's a cheeseburger <laughs> and everybody goes like freaking crazy, hooting and hollering. He'd say like, if you, what would you think? He says, you would have to conclude that these people were starving or there's just something really crazy about them, right? I know sometimes people post pictures of food they've made, okay, uh, on Instagram. But trust me, you don't look at pictures of hamburgers the way you look at other things on the internet. Sex is very different than eating. And everybody knows that. And if you've had sex, you know that. And the only way that you might think that it's not different than eating is if you have really seared your conscience in a way. And there are lots of, 
I think there are lots of forces in our world that would love to help you sear your conscience and tell you that it's no big deal. But deep in your heart, you know if you have sex with somebody you feel married, right? Sex is not just biological. Another lie, porn won't hurt you. Um, I love this quote, Naomi Wolf. I don't know, do you guys still read her book, The Beauty Myth? It's a really important book. Wish a Christian had taken on the oppressive um, standards of beauty that um, exist in our world today. Um, but her book's an important one. But she also wrote a book, or actually this, she wrote this essay called The Porn Myth. And she was talking about um, running into one of the earliest feminist heroes of hers at a party, somebody who had predicted the way the internet would change um, the way porn was distributed. Um, and, and she says she was right about what would happen, but she was completely wrong about the impact it would have. And listen to what Naomi Wolf says. She says the whole world post-internet did become pornographized. Young men and women are indeed being taught what sex is, how it looks, what its etiquette and expectations are by pornographic training, and this is having a huge effect on how they interact. But the effect is not making men into raving beasts. On the contrary, the onslaught of porn is responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real women and leading men to see fewer and fewer women as porn worthy. Far from having to fend off porn crazed young men, young women are worrying that as mere flesh and blood they can scarcely get, let alone hold their attention. I think that's really profound. There was a study, I think it was released in Atlantic Monthly just about three or four years ago, that people your age are having significantly less sex than they were 10 years ago. You wouldn't get that from the popular culture, I know, but all the surveys bear that out. All the surveys bear that out. Porn is never just private. It affects the way you see other people, and of course it contributes to a huge economic enterprise that enslaves literally huge numbers of people. It's a lie. Lie four, sex equals love. Even that phrase, I despise that phrase, making love, right? It's interesting, romance, love equated with sex. Um, the Bible doesn't, doesn't say that. <laughs> Even the phrase falling in love has more to do with modern culture and fairy tales than it does in the Bible. The Puritans used to talk about getting married so that they could fall in love. They understood love is not something you fall into, it's something that's intentional and something you have to work at. And that um, doesn't mean that there's no place for romance, but it's, it's different. Um, sex does not equal love. Um, number five, sex equals intercourse. Now, you guys are too old to remember Bill Clinton, aren't you? But, you know, it's fascinating the way all the surveys showed the cultural significance when he had uh, the situation with Monica Lewinsky and he got up on, you know, national television and said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. What he meant was I did not have intercourse. And previous to that and then after that, what people considered as sex was completely uh, influenced by that press conference he had. 
so that before that, no, really people didn't just equate sex with intercourse, but after that, the, the numbers skyrocketed on surveys. And that's kind of where we are now. You know, people say, well, we're not having sex, okay, but you're doing all kinds of things that are really building sexual intimacy. Using what God has given you as a way to say to someone, I belong to you, but using it without intending to say that. And, and, and that's why I remember I when I was talking about dating, I said, Jesus' principle, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That there should be consistencies in what you're saying with your body and what you're saying with your words and what you're saying with your heart. And, and that's the problem with sex equals intercourse is then we don't think about what we're saying with every other thing that we're doing with our sexuality. And that's, that's a problem. The Bible says that all sexual expression is a way for you to say, I'm committed to you. And thus you shouldn't indulge in life-uniting activity without a life-uniting intent. And you can ask me more questions about the details. Did I kiss Wendy before we married? Yes, okay? But I was pretty sure I wanted to marry her. And I felt that that was important. That it wasn't a way of saying, I think you're hot. Though I did. But it was a way of saying, I, I'm, I'm committing. There's a commitment that goes in with that, right? I don't want to nitpick about that, but I want you to think about this. Because so often people ask about, well, how far can you go? And, and I want to say that's the wrong place to start. You have to start with what's the purpose of sexuality? Why did God give it to us? And are we using it in the way that God gave it to us for? But that leads us to the next lie, which is that sex is what you were made for. I remember, um, I remember seeing Sting one time on a, a late night TV show, years and years and years ago. And, um, and, and it, you know, this was after he had an, an interview in Rolling Stone where he talked about you know, through these uh, certain tech techniques that he used that he could sustain an erection. This is before, you know, all the little blue pills and whatnot for hours. And so, of course, the, you know, the late night talk show host was going to ask him about that. And what he said was really interesting. He said, basically, I touched the face of God in two places, making music and having sex. And I was like, I remember, I remember watching that saying, gosh, well, what about the rest of us like humans? Do we have any hope of ever you know, touching the face of God if we can't have an erection for four hours and we can't make music like Sting. Like that's a pretty hard, that's a pretty high bar. I'm so glad that sex is not heaven, right? It's a signpost pointing us, pointing us to be fully known and fully loved. Sex is a signpost. It's a good gift and of course, the best gifts make the most powerful idols. But sex is fundamentally about giving, not about selfishly meeting your needs. In marriage, which is the only biblical context for sex, your body is not your own. We talked about that last week and how countercultural that is. Um, neither partner is to use sex simply for their own gratification. And sexual ecstasy, as wonderful as it is, is not an end in itself. It's a signpost pointing to what we will experience in heaven when we are fully known and fully loved. Now, one indication that we've idolized sex, and I remember what I thought this way when I was your age, is that we can't imagine heaven being great if we won't be married there. 
People always want to know that question. Or maybe they pray, Lord, come back, but not until I've gotten married and was able to have sex. I know that some of you have thought that. I know you've thought that. Because I was like you. I thought that. Like, yeah, heaven sounds great, but come on, I really just want to have sex first, right? But that is to miss the point that sex is a signpost pointing us to something even greater than sexual ecstasy, being fully known and fully loved. All right, next. Rules are all you need. Tragically, of course, most Christian teaching on sex centers on making rules rather than discussing the purpose of sex and what it communicates. The problem with this approach, look at this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. This is one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I used to memorize that as go eat popcorn. Anybody else ever memorize? Yes, right? Okay. So Colossians 2. This is, I think, one of the most important passages in the Bible on holiness and one that is rarely talked about. Um, This is verse 20. Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental or basic principles of the world or elemental spirits of the world, it's hard to translate. Why, as though you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that are all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed, listen to this, these indeed, these rules have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Greek is actually a little stronger. It says they're worse than useless. They may actually, and over in Romans chapter 7, Paul says he wouldn't have known what coveting was until the law said, do not covet. That there is actually a, a way that the law and rules actually stir up your rebellion. They don't make you sinful. It's already in there, your rebellion towards God. But sometimes it gets really stirred up by rules. So all the more reason to not make up rules that God hasn't made up. Even if they seem holy, and they seem holy, why? Because they're about the harsh treatment of the body. Again, this gets back to that that kind of Greek idea that the body is bad. And therefore, the more miserable you are as a Christian, probably the more holy you are. The Bible denounces this way of teaching people about holiness because it doesn't say that your desires are bad and need to be stamped out. Christianity is not... Um, Buddhism. Christianity says, no, you need to have your desires directed and stirred up. This is why C.S. Lewis says, our problem is not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. We're too easily satisfied so much of the time. Now, the Bible, of course, does lay down some limits, right? There are some clear um, limits on what you can and can't do, right? But That is not the basic approach to the Bible. The Bible's basic approach is why are you doing what you're doing? What do you mean by it? What are you saying by it? If you haven't thought about that, you shouldn't be doing it. And if you don't have a good answer to that, you shouldn't be doing it. What is the purpose of sex? Because the heart really matters. The heart really matters. And we have to dig down and ask a a, a couple more questions. I want to ask this. How do we use sex? I think sometimes we use sex as a shortcut to intimacy. I always tell dating couples, wait as long as possible before you start kissing. 
Because once that becomes a part of your relationship, it's so easy to have that be a shortcut to intimacy and to not continue to pursue getting to know one another, learning the stories that have shaped and molded you. That's where real intimacy develops. Or when you have a fight, it's easier just to like not talk about it, but just to make out. Like all those sorts of things really uh, are not like the life uniting intent going along with sexual expression. Mary Calderon, I don't know, you might object to this, but I've, I've seen this to be true, especially with like high school kids, maybe a little different now in college. She says the girl plays at sex for which she is not ready because fundamentally what she wants is love and the boy plays at love for which he's not ready because what he wants is sex. Overstated, maybe, but I do think there's some tendencies there that are worth reflecting in your own life and thinking about. Sex cannot end the ache of loneliness. Like I said, it's a good thing, but it's not heaven. And the hope that many have that sex will help them connect, well, here's the thing, it's rooted in a deep truth. Because sex is about committing and being committed. But again, if you're only saying that with part of you and not the whole of your life, then it, it ends up kind of making a mess of things. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. I've always thought this was helpful. When you break God's laws, they break you. Not because God is, is a meanie, but because his law reflects what he made you for. Remember Isaiah 54, five, what I often say is one of the most important verses if you understand the Bible, if you would understand Christianity, your maker is your husband. The one who made you, made you in a certain way and he's not left that for you to try to figure out on your own. He's graciously told us, but he also loves us deeply. Marries himself to us. He doesn't just make up rules for the heck of it. So when he says this is what sex is for, it's because he invented it and he created you in a way that it needs to be handled with care. Some use sex to feel alive or to feel in control. And this is part of sexual addiction and pornography. You know, it's interesting. Um, Harry Schomburg wrote a really helpful book called False Intimacy on Sexual Addiction. He says um, so much of sexual addiction is a flight from real intimacy and vulnerability in a way that you can feel alive without actually having to be vulnerable. And so much of the mythology and the kind of worldview of porn is along that, right? Or masturbation as well. These are ways where you can stay safe, not be vulnerable, but still feel alive. And sometimes people try to fight against those things like they're merely about sex when they're often about something much deeper. What about masturbation? Since I mentioned it and since nobody's looking at, no, actually people are still looking at me. Usually you use that word and everybody just kind of looks down like this, you know? Well, I, you know, the Bible doesn't speak directly to it if you're looking for a rule, but it does speak to it if you're looking at the purpose of sexuality. Now, I want to say two things. One is, it doesn't seem to make sense to use the apparatus God has given you to unite yourself to another person when that's not the goal or the intent. I think actually there can be use of masturbation in marriage that's fine and appropriate and even can be helpful, but not solo. But here's the thing I wanna say on the other hand, it's not 
one of the weightier matters of the law that Jesus talks about. And I think for so many people, it's so shame-inducing, or else they just sort of don't think about it because they don't want to think about it, and they just try and, like, just, I just didn't want to go there. They, the thing is, I think the devil just has a heyday with us on this, and wants us to think that like the sole barometer of whether you're like a good Christian or whether you're growing is on like how well you're doing with that issue. I talk to people all the time that like are kind of talking in guarded uh, ways about habitual sin. What does the Bible say about habitual sin? And I know what they're talking about, right? I'm like, it, like Jesus says that there are weightier matters of the law and masturbation is not one of those. Like, I think so often it becomes the focus and we don't even think about, are we loving people in our life? Are we b doing justice? All those things that he says are the weightier matters of law because we're so focused on this. Does this thing matter? Yeah, it matters. You, you don't, you're not surprised that I would say that after what I've said about sex tonight, but it's not one of the weightier matters of the law. And the devil would love to make you think that it's the only thing that matters about you. And it's the only thing he thinks about when he thinks about you. And that's just not true. We often use sex as well to hold on to a relationship. Hear me clearly. If you're in a relationship that would end if you refuse to be sexually intimate, you're not in a relationship that's worth having. You're just not. You're not being loved and cherished. We use sex sometimes to overcome insecurities, to feel wanted, valued. We use sex to try to satisfy the hunger we have for real intimacy, but instead it always leaves us feeling empty and guilty. We can even use sex as a way to say, screw you, to God. It's a very strong connection between sex and anger. And again, like the difficulty in fighting against lust and, and sexual temptation is sometimes we try to fight against it directly when it's actually being driven by other things, like fear and anger. Things that make us feel like we want to feel powerful rather than feel vulnerable. And sometimes sexuality gets mixed up in all of that. All right, well, that's a lot of heavy stuff. I want to close with, with talking about the gospel, right? Because Jesus was not surprised when he came down to earth that he was surrounded by people who had made a mess of sex. And if you think, if you think that you've made a mess of sex, well, then you're one of everybody in this room. I, I always tell people like, you know, when you, when you get married one day and wear, if you wanna wear white, that's great, but you're doing it out of faith because nobody really deserves to wear white, honestly. There's nobody that comes into marriage sexually pure. Not when you understand the bar that Jesus has set, right? And so, so what do we do with that? Uh, one of my favorite passages, and actually at our uh, Presbytery meeting this afternoon, man, this guy Mike Fenema, Wendy knows Mike, um, who was paralyzed a couple years ago in a mountain bike accident. Um, he preached on this passage from his wheelchair on finding joy inexpressible in the midst of horrific tragedy and suffering. It was fitting, right? Because, you know, Presbytery is where all the PCA churches, of which Covenant Pres is one, all gather together. And we worship together, all the pastors and the elders. And so it was a very kind of sobering time and for Mike to preach even more so. But man, this is really one of my favorite passages. I want to just 
close with a couple things from this. First Peter chapter one, it's on your outline. Start at verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay, what do we need to hear tonight after all the stuff that I've said? You don't earn or need to earn the smile of God by how well you've done or not done with sexual sin, right? Now, some of you need to talk to somebody about the ways you've been sinned against, okay? And, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that. And I could, because a lot of times college is a time when people get out of family systems and relational dynamics that they didn't realize were abusive. It's not unusual to be like, wait, not everybody had that experience? Don't just sit on that stuff. Talk to somebody about it, right? Like I say, we have a Title IX office here at Belmont for a reason. And it's, and it's important to use that and they can help. Um, but here's the, the other thing I want you to know. If you have sinned sexually and nobody here hasn't, you need to know how good the good news is. Look what it says here. We've been given new birth. Nobody births themselves. If, if you are a Christian here tonight, it's because you were given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And not only have you been given this new birth, look what it says in verse four, you've given an inheritance, been given an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. I love this. Like what God thinks about you is based on what Jesus did. And you didn't have anything to do with it. You didn't contribute anything except unbelief, right? But it was not enough to thwart the pleasure that the life and death of Jesus brought to his father. So if you are a Christian, you have an inheritance. Talk about security. It's a security that is absolute because you didn't earn it, therefore you can't unearn it. And you don't have to hold on to it, it holds on to you. And it's kept in heaven where you can't get at it to screw it up. If it was in your possession, you would deface it because we deface all the good gifts that God gives us. We do. That's why he keeps this in heaven. And I love that it'll never perish, spoil, or fade. You guys know I love to collect books. And one of the challenges is sometimes I get a little ticked off because I go in my office and somebody's opened the blinds to let sun come in because sun's terrible for books, especially dust jackets of old fiction books. And they fade. And I'm like, ugh. So I, you know, I kind of, you know, whatever. <laughs> Do you know what doesn't fade? You know what, you know what doesn't fade? Things that are inherently gorgeous. Like ink, put it on a page, will fade. But gold doesn't fade, right? So you have an inheritance that is inherently glorious and beautiful. 
because it's the righteousness of Jesus that was earned for you. So what you need to do with your sexual sin is collapse upon Jesus. And if you don't think that you have sexual sin, then you really need to collapse on Jesus and ask him to help you live in line with reality. Because again, the Bible says the heart is what matters. The heart is what matters and none of us have a pure heart. We live in fear and unbelief, but we've been birthed, birthed into a new and living hope and given an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. And look what it says now, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. And that we are not shielded by our faith. We're kept through faith, not because of our faith. So if you feel like tonight, I just don't know if I have very strong faith, that actually doesn't really matter. If you have faith in Jesus, you have this inheritance that will never perish and you are shielded by God's power. He holds on to you through faith, not because of your faith. And that is such good news. That means there is nothing that you can do, nothing you have done that is too big for the forgiveness of Jesus, right? He literally suffered death on a cross. Did everything, everything that would have made God wanna turn away from us, Jesus took. And he said, it is finished. That meant it was finished. And there's not still some punishment waiting for you because you've screwed up. I think one of the hardest things is for Christians to, to believe that they can be forgiven for things they've done after they should have known better. Don't, don't do that. Listen, Jesus knew everything you were going to do. You weren't forgiven because you didn't know better in the first place. And you're not impossible to forgive because you should have known better. Jesus gives you his perfect beauty. It's credited to your account. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. Therefore, you can be honest with him about anything, even about like the secret thoughts in your heart that you're too ashamed to tell anybody about. You can talk to him. Jesus gets it. And Jesus did everything that was required to secure you in the love of his Father. And that is the only way that you're gonna actually be able to take an honest look and start to deal with the junk in your heart, is to know that anything you find there is forgiven sin. You're not gonna discover something that's gonna make God say, oh, I don't know what I was thinking. I thought that this is how bad you were. And now I realize, uh, I don't know about this. God never regrets sending his son to die for his people. Let me pray and then we're going to sing a closing song.